Well, hello there, and welcome to Consortio Day. My name is John Chandler, and I'm a spiritual director, and this podcast is a companion to my spiritual direction practice. I have conversations with people who do work that they consider to be sacred, uh, work that is divine in nature, and ask questions about what does it look like then for them to have practices to partner with God or walk alongside God for the work that they are doing. My guest today is Cindy Lee, and I recently ran across Cindy. She was interviewed on the Gravity Leadership Podcast, and I knew from listening to that and then reading her book that she was somebody I wanted to invite into conversation for this podcast as well. I think her book, Unforming, is going to be probably one of my favorite books of this year. I know we're already halfway through, but I just it's it's a book that I have not stopped thinking about, and you'll hear me allude to that even in this conversation with Cindy today. So, Looking forward to sharing her thoughts with you in this conversation, and I hope you'll consider reading her book as well. Uh, A couple other things to be looking forward to here as we are in the middle of the summer, uh, depending on when you might be listening to this, but we are coming up on the fall, and I have two new uh, spiritual practice cohorts that are coming up for this fall. I'm going to be offering the Practicing Examine cohort again. And I'm also gathering interest right now for a practicing Sabbath cohort. So if either of those is something that you feel like you might be interested in and want to maybe learn about those practices or learn from others who are exploring those practices together, uh, be glad to have you join that. You can go to formationcohorts.com. And that will take you to the page on my website where those are listed and you can read a little bit more about them. I just really love this cohort format because it leaves a space for learning a little bit. Um, One of the things I miss from my days of being a pastor is teaching. So I love being able to share things that I've learned as I've explored either of these practices. But at the same time, and even more important, we learn from one another. And we know that other people are trying to incorporate these practices in their own life, even as we talk about them. So I'd be glad to have any of you who might be listening to this and are wondering, what would it look like for me to develop a practice of examine or develop a practice of Sabbath in my own life? So again, that's formationcohorts.com. And you can Read more about those for coming up this fall or beyond, as I will continue to be offering those. But in the meantime, I hope you appreciate and enjoy this conversation with Cindy Lee. Cindy, it is a pleasure to meet you. Uh, you know, I reached out to you after reading your book and first heard about your book on my friend uh, Ben and Matt's podcast for Gravity Leadership and just really was taken by your thoughts there. Excuse me, and knew I wanted to read your book, and so I'm, I'm just thrilled to have this conversation today with you. So that being said, let's talk a little bit about just your background. Let us know a little bit about who you are and the sacred work that you do. Yeah, well, it, it's great to be with you, John, and thank you for having me on here, and I look forward to the conversation that we're having today. Um, yeah, my name is Cindy Lee. Um, I am in the Los Angeles area, um, and I am a spiritual director, and I also teach in spirituality and spiritual direction. Um, and particularly for context, like my the focus of my work in spirituality and spiritual direction is on uh, people of color and communities of color. So particularly um, thinking through uh, what spirituality means for um, people of color in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, um, did you 
I'd like, how did you come to spiritual direction? I don't know how prominent it might have been in the tradition that you grew up in. So how did you come to that as a, a vocation? Yes, it wasn't something I knew about <laughs> in my tradition or growing up. Um, I began just in the general areas of spiritual formation and spirituality um, because of my own hungry soul, like my desperation to really need to experience the divine. And that has led me to go deeply in, in into the study of spirituality, which is the study of that experience. And, and through, um, you know, immersing in spirituality, got to know about um, just the particular ministry and role of spiritual direction. Um, and something that I say often is I, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. It was the kind of person that I want to be mm, and I still aspire yeah. to be. And so I, I went into that training, um, not actually intending to practice, although I now do practice. I just saw that it, this was something that I needed to learn for myself. How do I posture myself as a listener in this world that doesn't value listening? And so yeah. that is how I came to it. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, just from hearing on, on that other podcast, but especially from reading your book, you know, I, I'm very aware that you have a very, I, I experience a very like authentic, almost gritty expression of spirituality for you that it seems like your academic degrees, you know, your advanced academic degrees did not pound out of you. <laughs> and I say that as a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm curious to hear, like, what was your what was your area of study for your advanced degrees, and and how how did how was it how were you able to maintain such an authentic expression? I'm not trying to be hard on the academy here at all mm -hmm. as I ask that question, but but I appreciate the authenticity that you seem to have. So, what what did that process look like or that journey? Yeah, I, I think the reason for that is is each time that I entered into my academic degrees, my intention wasn't that it would lead to any kind of job or position in academia, my intention was really just that hunger to learn. Yeah. And, and so I went into each of those degrees and even my spiritual direction training for the experience for myself. Um, and, and then even after the degrees, as I entered into the writing of my book, what you're reading is my own wrestling yeah. my like real life struggle with each of these issues um you're just you're reading my journaling notes basically yeah and so i think that's why it comes across that way yeah and and, and it does read like that although fully formed right it feels very true to your heart and, and so i guess i guess we should say this your book is our unforming let's at least mention that here because mm -hmm. i've already referenced it two or three times and now you have tell us tell us a little bit about your book yeah, the book is called Our Unforming, a Dewesternizing Spiritual Formation. Um, and like I said, it is my own process of how I went through that. Um, and, you know, each of my degrees actually, you know, played a role in being able to go through that process for myself. And, and so, you know, my MA degree was in intercultural studies. So that prepped me to really think about culture and my own culture and, and through that a, a lot of reading in um 
my own Asian cultural context, as well as, you know, different Asian religious traditions and, and studying those deeply. Um, and then, you know, my PhD degree was in spirituality, um, which gave me a really strong foundation in uh, our historical Western spiritual traditions. Um, and so then my book is the process then of, okay, I learned all this. What does this mean for me? Um, because the Western spiritual traditions are not my traditions. And there are ways in which I have a complete disconnect from that, even though I can learn and grow and experience things from that. I also need to figure out something for myself. What yeah. is the spirituality that I experience in my body and in my cultural experience? Mm -hmm. And it's that book is me just naming that and uh, reflecting on that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I feel like one of the things I've been aware of, you know, and I've been interested in spiritual formation for a long time from my time as a pastor. Like I always had a lot of interest in that, you know, and exposed to people like Dallas Willard and David Benner. And so, so much of the literature that I ran across and so much of the literature that I've read about spiritual formation is from that white male context to the, to the degree that I've you know, or, or just white context. Certainly there's a lot of uh, white females as well, but to the degree that it, I would have almost said, this is a primary event area of interest only to the white North American church. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and yet you invite us to a broader conversation, but you even bring in so many voices, you know, that are not from the white North American church. Was that was that a lot of effort on your part to dig and look, or did you just find that once you looked here and there, they, they just were able to find a trail of voices that are already exploring this? Yeah, I think you're naming my experience that, yes, a lot of those books on spirituality and spiritual formation that we have, they are great, but I also experienced a dissonance as I was reading them. Like I knew they are not writing to me. Um, and so I always had to do an interpretation for, re for myself, reading all of those books, recognizing that I am not the center. I am not the intended audience for each of these books. Um, and so feeling that dissonance, I began to ask questions. Well, what does it feel like if my own spirituality was centered? What would that spirituality be? What would it feel like if other communities of color were centered in that spiritual conversation? What does that spirituality look like? And that began my exploration. Um, and it just happened to be that I started asking those questions at the end of 2019. Hmm. It was um, the right context then at the beginning of that pandemic when we were all just in our homes um, that gave me just the right space and context to just start reading and immersing myself in different authors of color. I spent two years only reading from authors of color. And as I was reading their experiences and often not named as spirituality, right? Um, but as I was reading, I was asking, well, what is the spirituality that they are expressing here? Yeah. Um, and that also helped me to process then my own spirituality. Well, I, I imagine we'll circle back through some of that again, because I think what you express is so authentic, but I'd love to guide the conversation then towards what, do you, what is your own, you know, spirituality? What do your practices look like? Because part of the 
hope and longing for these conversations is that we can all just learn from each other because so much of this isn't really being modeled or taught well mm-hmm. in, in many of our churches. And so before I get into some of those questions, I, I'd just love to hear like, and this seems like a straightforward, simple question, um, but I think framing an answer to it can be a helpful context, which is in your work as a, um, you know, a trainer and a teacher of spirituality and spiritual direction in your work as a spiritual director, what role does partnering with God play in your work? Yeah. Uh, I suppose I wouldn't use the word partnering. Um, I think I would use the word maybe integrating. Um, how do I integrate my experience and the divine experience as one? Um, and how do we experience this life together? Um, and, and so I think it is just a, how, the question that I'm asking is how do we come together as one in what I'm in the life that I live or what I'm doing? And so how am I expressing the love and compassion of the divine in everything that I am embodying and doing? Um, and so I think the question I ask is where am I experiencing that integration with the divine? Hmm. So I'm curious. I, I mean, I love, please don't hear this as a confrontational question at all. Sure. Like what, what is it about the word partnering? I mean, I love the answer you gave. What is it about the word partnering that causes you a little bit of dissonance? I think because there's um, a disconnect. It, yeah. it, it, it assumes there's two very different entities. God is doing God's thing. Mm-hmm. We are doing our thing. <laughs> you know, how do we you know, work together in, in doing our two different things? Um, whereas I think integration is how do I like really interweave yeah. um, our experiences together? Yeah. See, my, my whole podcast and spiritual direction practice are my rough equivalent of partnering with God in the Latin. So I'm, you're going to cause me to have to rename it. You know, I'm going to have to change okay. it. <laughs> no. Well, thank, thanks for that. Um, I, thank you for that idea. Uh I'd be, I'd, I'd love to hear like, what does, what does that look like then in your day to day? What are your own spiritual practices and, and how do you, I was going to say achieve, but <laughs> that's not the right mm-hmm. word. You know, how do you, how do you find that integration with the divine? Yeah. I, I've, I had a season of more intentional practices. Um, I've, moved sort of beyond that season. I I think practices are really helpful. They're like tools, right, that help work out certain muscles. Um, But then they also have limitations when we think that we can schedule in our practices on our calendars. And and again, it, it creates that disconnect where, okay, I now have certain times when I connect with the divine. And then when that's not on my calendar, I'm not connecting with the divine. So it, it kind of gets us into that bifurcation of experiences. Um, and so now that I've done those practices and worked on those muscles, I think I'm more in a place of continuously trying to be attuned to myself and my own needs and desires and attuned to spirit and the spirit's expressions um, uh, and where are those coming together 
Um, and so I do have practices that are that come out of me listening to my soul's needs yeah. for that connections with the desire. And it comes out as I often step outside in the mornings and as needed throughout the day. I have a little, very little courtyard as a backyard. Um, but like every California. morning, I just, <laughs> yes, yes, I'm in California. I don't have a real backyard, but I have a little outdoor space. Um, I just have a need that, that my body every morning just wants to step out there and take deep breaths um, and just look up to the sky and allow that sacred breath to just be a part of how I start my day. And then sometimes because of what's happening in the day, my body says, you need to step back out there. And so as my body feels that, I'll open that back door again and step out there, take a few deep breaths. Um, so sometimes that's just for a minute. Sometimes on weekends, that's for an hour or two of doing that. Um, and then because of my practice as, as a spiritual director, I often have a need at the end of each day to go take a walk. I think it's a need of yes. what I hold in my body as I'm listening to other people and holding things for other people. There's a need to release that at the end of the day. So I try to, you know, if, if not every day, like every other day, I, I step out and take a 20-minute walk. Sometimes it ends up being a 45-minute walk, of, it, and it's an intentional releasing of the things I'm holding. How, how did you come? Have you always had that level of awareness and attentiveness to how your body is holding these things, or is that something that you've had to learn and create an awareness of yeah for sure that's something I've had to learn so like I said I had uh, you know a long season uh, years of intentional structured practices I used the tools that we have in western spirituality things like examine or centering prayer or very intentional spiritual practices that help me learn those muscles Right, like what are the muscles of having these connections with the divine? Let me work on developing those muscles, and through that, then gained a greater attunement both to myself and to the spirit. Yeah, and so if I can put Western spirituality language to this, I mean, it, it sounds like you've fully embraced what would be called contemplative Christianity or contemplative spirituality. Would that be a fair language to put to it? Or is there a, a nuance or a fuller expression of that that you would want to ascribe to it? Yes, for sure. I, I think what I'm describing is a contemplative spirituality um, and that that is not Western. <laughs> I think the contemplative sure. experience is actually what connects different religious traditions together, that every major religion in this world has that contemplative, meditative, mystical element. And that is actually our shared experience. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's fair. I appreciate your redirect. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, I told you this before we started, but one of the things that has just resonated with me multiple times, and I've just continued to think about since uh, reading your book, is suffering. Um, and, you know, I, I remember at one point 
both when I read it and then when I was looking back at my notes, you know, you talk about we don't need a, the- I, I'm paraphrasing here, but you said we don't need a theology of suffering so much as we need a practice of suffering. And, you know, my take, and, and where this has become the most stark for me is when I pull up almost any church website, especially in the area where I am, um, but I'm sure this is common across North America. Everybody just looks so happy mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody looks like, you know, they're finding purpose and they're finding um, value to, to the degree that it almost feels like we have tried to um, drown out the idea that suffering might even be part of our Christian practices. Uh, so I, I'd love to hear a little bit of, thoughts from you on why suffering is so important and then even practically speaking what it might look like to include suffering as a practice in our what it might look like for us to introduce suffering really as a practice in our western spirituality yeah i think you've named important things there that we have a culture of positivity which then has made us avoid suffering and death and because of that we are not prepared for for suffering and death which inevitably comes and so we have created a a christian culture that's just odd because suffering is all throughout the biblical scriptures and yet we somehow have not really faced it or prepared ourselves for it but when we look at uh, communities that are not as privileged as the West, yeah. they then they don't get that privilege of being able to avoid suffering. They are confronted with, with it in their everyday lives. And so what I learned from observing those communities is that the main difference is the West has a, a theology of suffering. Mm-hmm. These other oppressed communities have a spirituality and practice of suffering that theology of suffering that the West has is all in the head, right? Which, and if that's all we are equipped with, then when suffering comes, we just ask why, which puts us back in the head and we just don't have any tools to help us um, in those times. What we learn from communities that are facing suffering every day is they don't have the privilege to be in that theology space, that why space. They don't have the privilege to be sitting around creating and writing theologies of suffering. Instead, they are immersed in that suffering. And though so, they need to develop how are we in the suffering together? Mm-hmm. And so that spirituality and practice of suffering is very communal. Like, how are we present together, even though? There are no answers. There are no whys. How do we stay present to each other? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it seems like what we see a lot in uh, the North American church, you, you use the term Western spirituality. I keep using the term North American church, which might or might not be helpful. <laughs> I don't know. Speaking particularly about, you know, the white evangelical stream of the North American church, but it almost seems like what we see then is a, defensiveness and a rejection when others name the suffering. Mm. Why, why, why do you imagine that might be? Mm. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking there? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm, I guess, I guess I'll get even political in this, but like when some of the voices in the church are the ones that speak out against a movement like Black Lives Matter, you know, to say, well, I, I, I reject your suffering because all lives matter. You know, that's what it, that's what it feels like to me. It feels mm-hmm. like there's a little bit of an offensiveness around acknowledging the suffering, acknowledging uh, the barriers, acknowledging the plight uh, mm-hmm. that others might have. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. And what that comes out of is the other, you know, cultural difference that I name in the book is the difference between that individualistic cultural orientation versus that collective or communal cultural orientation. Um, Because when people say that, well, I'm not racist or I have black friends, what they're in a sense saying is that they see themselves as individuals and not part of the community and the collective. Whereas a collective orientation says that if one person in my community is suffering, then I am suffering too. If one person in my community is not free, right, is not healed, then I am also not healed and free and whole. And so it, it's that individualistic view that is able to allow someone to disconnect themselves from the systemic issues um, that we experience in our in our particularly U.S. context. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, uh, what do you imagine you might say if the leadership team of uh, a church from that, you know, U.S. Uh, white tradition, um, white evangelical tradition came to you and said, we hear what you're saying on this. What would it look like for us to incorporate or embrace or welcome mm-hmm. <laughs> suffering into our into our church community, into our church practices. What do you think you might say to them? What suggestions? Yeah, I, I think there's two responses here. One is just the the op- openness for to like I don't know train communities in in opening up themselves to that collective posture. The other part of that response is what does that look like, particularly for racism in the U S. So I think that first one is, is a really formational process um, that Sunday service is not for learning and communicating right theology, that Sunday service is an opportunity to experience something together. And so I think for pastors and other leaders of congregation is, well, how do you then use that experience to experience the collective, to experience the communal suffering? Um, And you can use your liturgy that way. You can use your worship that way. You can use your your sermons that way. Um, and, and I think I learned that from Howard Thurman, right? The way that he crafted Sunday services as experiences and not just you're, you come here to learn right theology and about the Bible, right? You come here to experience something and it's a collective experience. Yeah. 
the second part of that question is, okay, what does this look like for congregations um, addressing race issues specifically? Mm. Um, in, the, in that context, then, I believe that white congregations, white leaders have a very important role to play in this because we, we to keep moving forward as a community, we actually need white people to talk to other white people. Um, historically, we have put people of color in that role. Yeah. We have put people of color in that role of being the bridge people come in and do the DEI stuff for us, come in and speak, you know, um, Black History Month or Asian History Month, or here are the books to read by people of color. And we think it's enough when we put people of color in that bridge role. What that has done is it's emotional and exhausting labor for people of color. Yeah. And there are limitations because when white folks are reacting to the racism in our, this country, it's coming out of their own deep fears. Yeah. And where are the safe spaces for them to have conversations about their deep fears? It's not going to be with people of color. Yeah. It's going to be with other white people that can listen to those fears, but then also help them think about those fears in a different way. And so I think we are looking for leaders in white context, white leaders in white context to take up that role then. Talk to your own people. We need you to do that work. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. A um, little bit of a, a little bit of a shift here. Um, one of the things I appreciated reading your book is just how generous your posture is towards exploring and considering practices from outside the tradition you grew up with. Um, you know, and a, a couple of them stood out to me that, and these aren't necessarily practices, but a couple of things that, you know, you mentioned Randy Woodley, you know, I remember reading, you know, his book uh, a few years ago and just thinking like, this is so outside what my experience is, but I really appreciate the perspective, you know, and to take that further reading God is a Black Woman by Christina Cleveland, I think last year. And just, I, you know, I, I had no idea that all these Black Madonnas exist. Like this is completely, you know, and I think, you know, one of the realities I'm aware of as a, as a white man from, you know, from church backgrounds, that would be somewhat moderate theologically, you know, um, not, not super conservative, but not necessarily super progressive. But there is a tendency, I promise there's a question that's coming out of all this. Yeah, thank you, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, and I think you, you name this in your book as well. There's a tendency to protect, right? There's a tendency really to protect um, probably our privilege and power by determining what things are acceptable and what things are too different or what mm. things are outside of orthodoxy or orthopraxy. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that's always going to be a tension when somebody is speaking from that, from the center, you know, mm -hmm. as, as you would, or from a centered experience. Uh, so I, I wonder what it would look like or how would you name, like as you are, 
exploring other expressions of spirituality, some of them Christian, some of them not, you know, mm -hmm. it, or at least from my perspective, um, how would how would you determine this is a practice or this is a spirituality that I can welcome and integrate into my own understanding of Jesus, my own understanding of Trinitarian Christianity versus this one is too far outside the norm, so to speak? Mm -hmm. That's a long question, but I, I hope there's a true question that you can respond to. Yes, <laughs> yes. I think I know. I can hear what you're getting at. Um, yeah, I think the key key thing in that is that my primary audience in this book are people of color. Right. That people of color are the ones I'm centering, and this book is written for them. Yes. While white people reading the book are very welcome to be in this conversation, but I'm not centering the experiences of white people. So, um, and I'm finding that like white people reading the book are talking to me about very different things than when people of color read the book, they're having completely other set of yeah. responses. Um, so what that means then is as for people of color, what I am trying to do in this book is an opening of awareness yeah. because what has happened because of colonial history, colonization history, um, you know, the history of missionaries, what has happened is we have been taught that our cultural experiences are evil. Mm -hmm. That has done something in us. We have an internal disassociation from our cultural experiences and that has caused deep harm deep embodied and internal harm for people of color yeah. so for people of color there is a real deep spiritual work that we need to be doing and there's a lot of specificity in that in that that process will look very different for an asian american versus an indigenous person, a black person, a, a Latina person. Yeah. And that's why I'm pulling from different authors of, of different um, racial ethnicities just to show this is what's possible. Yeah. And the, in, the book is an invitation. Okay, now go out and explore, knowing that you have permission, that you are released to go explore and heal the harm that has been done to our communities. So that is the work for the people of color. And it's an open exploration, um, including wrestling with the things that the Western evangelical church has said was evil. Yes. Yeah. But I, I'm saying let's recognize that that comes out of a Western culture orientation. So let's go into it neutrally to re-explore that mm -hmm. spirituality for ourselves. And then come to the uh, determination uh, of what we want to really embody and receive and maybe what we don't. Yeah. So, I mean, apologies if this oversimplifies your response. <laughs> um, but it, it almost sounds as if you are saying, like, as you are exploring practices, set aside caution and explore with curiosity first. Yeah. 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 
Because that's what I wish the missionaries had done. Like when they went out into other cultures that like sounded different, tasted different, smelled different, right? Looked different. Yes. That they went in with curiosity of, oh, how is God expressing God's self here? Yeah. Instead of enforcing the God that they were comfortable with and knew really well and put in a box and making enforcing other people into their God box instead of being willing to be curious and explore. Yeah. So, I mean, you just gave the response of how you answer that question for people of color as they engage with the book. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it to the white people to talk to the other white people about how they should engage with that question. How's that sound? <laughs> but I mean, but I wonder if the posture would still be the same, like rather than resist something that might be threatening to the privilege that you hold to your experience of being centered, what does it look like for you to approach it with curiosity rather than caution? Yeah. I, I think, you know, I think the practices of decentering and centering are really helpful here. Like when white people are reading about the experiences of other cultural traditions, um, decenter yourself. Don't put yourself into someone else's story because that's what leads to appropriation, right? Taking someone else's practices, making it your own. Don't do that, right? So don't center yourself as you're reading these other experiences. Decenter yourself, recognizing this is not my cultural tradition. I can just read about it. Um, and know what other people experience, and that's great. Then center yourself. What does the process of reading about other people's cultural and spiritual traditions, how does that help me explore my own cultural traditions? Because there is Western culture, and we what we learn from Western spiritual traditions is that there is rich, there's rich culture and spirituality within. Uh, Western culture. And so we learn, we can observe the process from other cultural traditions. And then we go back to our own cultural traditions and dig even deeper so that we root ourselves within our own cultural traditions and how we can grow deeper in those. Yeah. And hopefully have a new perspective on which of those traditions should be dismantled mm -hmm. and which of those traditions should be celebrated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, we, we, we detoured um, more into conceptual stuff than I even intended in our conversation because my own curiosity gets the best of me sometimes. But I also think these are really important and valuable conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate you bringing I'm not trying to wrap up the podcast. I'm just trying to wrap up this little segment here. Of, I appreciate yeah. you naming some of those things. Um, I'm curious for you. Uh, how do you know, or talk back about your own spirituality and, you know, the, uh, the practices that you, or the non-practices <laughs> mm -hmm. that you have. I'm curious, how do you know when you aren't doing well? You know, how do you know when you need to reset somehow? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, because I think for, especially as a spiritual director, I need to be constantly aware of that and check yes. that in myself. And so that, and I think that's an ethical responsibility as spiritual directors that we're constantly just self-aware and know immediately when we're not doing well uh, because I cannot responsibly meet with a directee if I don't have space for them. Um, and so the question that I ask myself really regularly is, do I have space in myself right now 
for another person to hold mm. space with and for another person. Yeah. And if I look inside me and say, nope, I don't, then I need to go step out, <laughs> step outside to my little backyard and, and make sure that I'm addressing that. Um, and then some other, you know, clear signs are when I'm re when I'm reactive instead of grounded. Like so as I'm engaging with other people throughout the day, if I find that my responses to other people are just reactive responses, that's a clear sign that I'm in a, an unhealthy space and not a grounded space. So there are other little signs out there um, for that unhealthiness. Yeah. Uh, what happens if you figure that out? five minutes, two minutes before you have a spiritual directee about to jump on Zoom with you or to knock on your door. <laughs> how, do you, mm -hmm. what, how do you engage that? Yeah, and for sure that happens or it happens right when I'm already talking with the directee and I'm in the middle of a session and I realize it and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> what do I do now? Um, and, you know, I think part of the, the training as spiritual directors is – the continual self-awareness, which is what actually makes spiritual direction so hard, is learning that self-awareness. Um, and so um, if I catch it in the middle, then I learn to like, okay, I see you, I hear you. I'm just going to put you aside for a moment so that I can be fully attentive to the person I'm listening to. And then after, you know, being with someone, I then turn my attention to myself and what I need to work on in myself. Um, and, you know, we have our own spiritual directors, our supervisors that we turn to for those things. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. well, uh, my last question that I sent to you, but it's not going to be my last question today, but my last question I sent to you is who do you hope to be in 10 years? Yeah, that's a really interesting question for me uh, because I feel like I'm at a place in my life right now and who I am right now is not something is not a person that I saw 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm already just in a new place that I never expected for myself, a, a version of myself that I never saw in myself, um, which means I have no idea <laughs> what 10 years ahead actually looks like and who I'll be. Um, but I, that also means I'm really excited to learn and experience that me that will be in 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm aware that that's even a question from a Western spirituality perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's that idea of process rather than that idea of circular um, approach to life, you know, that you described that the, that an Eastern spirituality might embrace more. So right. you might be the same and that might be okay, or you might be totally different and that might be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, I in general, I don't, have plans and goals, <laughs> don't do those kinds of, of things. But also, we are only moving into fuller versions of ourselves. Yeah. So 10 years from now, I will still be me, but maybe I'm experiencing a fuller version of me. And is that, I mean, is that, has that always been you, whether culturally or just personality-wise, that you've not tended to be a person who would define long-term goals, or is that something that's actually come out of your own growth and maturity to release the need for that to a degree? Both. I, I think it is inherent in my personality that I'm just not a, a future thinker, so I don't think about future, which means I also don't set goals. 
Um, but I will say I've had a long time wrestling with an evangelical church culture yes. that taught me about sanctification as, as, you know, you need to reach these measurements in your life. And I've had a continual like struggle with that because I felt like I kept being pushed into that, but it just did not feel natural to me. Yeah. Which is why I wrote about it in the book. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I told you that wasn't gonna be the last question. I would love to hear a little bit about the spiritual direction training that you are a part of. And I, I, failed to pull it up and put it in front of me to ask you about it by name, but I, I'm, I love that it exists. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit about how you, how that came to be. Cause I, it doesn't look like you were the founder of it, but how that came to be. And uh, just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I think you're talking about uh, liberated together, Yes, uh, yes which is, <laughs> yeah, it's very new. Um, it's a spiritual direction school just for, women of color, as well as non-binary people of color. Um, and yeah, it, it, it comes out of the power of centering and decentering. Um, and, and so when we have that very specific focus on training women of color, it means that then we can create the whole curriculum, the whole experience to center the particular experiences of women of color, as well as the needs of women of color. What does the healing of women of color look like? What does the liberation of women of color look like? How do we then train spiritual companions to companion other women of color for that very specific work? So it just, that specificity gives us the opportunity to do that. Um, that other spiritual direction schools they won't be able to do that because they need to be able to create their curriculum for wider audiences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I really appreciate that that exists. And I, I would imagine that, and I know that it looked like the first group to go through it was, was really just forming. Mm -hmm. um, if I remember reading that right, but I would imagine that there are women um, finding their way to be part of this who would not have explored spiritual direction or would not have explored training for spiritual direction anywhere else. Are you finding that to be the case? Yes. I, I think for communities of color, spiritual direction is still unheard of. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's very new and it's slowly kind of coming to people's awareness. But I think we both know the healing power of spiritual direction relationships. Like, I believe that if we experience community in that way, we wouldn't need spiritual directors. But because we experience just really broken experiences of community, it's really healing to have spiritual direction relationships that then prepare us to be uh, in healing relationships and community. Um, so I believe like, you know, training women of color to be spiritual directors can be really powerful for women of color to find healing in their own spirituality to that for them then to, you know, be healing presences in their communities. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, Cindy, thank you so much. I, this is, uh, I, I just think you have so much to offer just from the way that you've been on your own journey of learning, but now passing that along and, and sharing it with others. I'm really thankful um, for anyone who, 
maybe is interested in spiritual direction with you or training with spiritual direction um, or just wants to follow along with your further explorations, how can they find you? Yeah, um, I'm on Instagram as Finding Eden, F-I-N-D-I-N-G-E-D-E-N. And the school is called Liberated Together. Um, And, you know, I also invite like white spiritual directors to um, be involved and support us financially to provide scholarships for women of color to be spiritual directors as well. So I invite that as well. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cindy. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me into this conversation, John, and I appreciate your curiosity and having this time with you.